What does a clinical scientist do? I asked my friend Andrew Humberstone, who has been a clinical scientist for many years. He works in Geneva for a pharmaceutical company in drug development. There are many ways to land a job as a clinical scientist. One way is by studying medicine. His way was pharmaceutical studies and a PhD. Let's listen to Andrew's experiences. Okay, we have here Andrew Humberstone. And thank you very much for coming for the second time, actually. And Andrew is a clinical scientist. So I would love to know from you, what does a clinical scientist do? Hi, Lawrence. Nice to be here. So I am working uh, in drug development. I mostly work for pharmaceutical companies, working on programs to develop new medicines for different indications. At the moment, I'm working for a small biotech company based in Geneva, and we specialize in developing uh, new medicines in women's health, in reproductive medicine and maternal health. Um, and my current program actually is a treatment for preterm labor to prevent preterm birth. So we're trying to help women who go into labor early to start having contractions, um, to stop the contractions and to delay the birth until the baby is better developed. Who comes up with the idea of a medicine or, let's say, a compound to develop in order to prevent preterm labor, for instance? So the origins uh, mostly come from academia. So there'll be some, uh, uh, in fact, this medicine, I think, originally came from a professor in, in the UK at the Imperial College. He was looking at uh, understanding the mechanisms behind preterm labor and actually normal labor as well, what Uh, chemical processes are involved in the body. And if you can understand that, then you can identify a particular receptor or an enzyme and think about blocking that or enhancing it maybe, but usually it's blocking. Um, and then you can look for chemical compounds, or maybe proteins um, that block that. You might test hundreds, thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of chemicals to find one or a group that, that work well. Uh, and then you can start testing them uh, in test tube experiments, looking at how they bind uh, to the enzyme in that cascade. Um, and then maybe you'll start doing tests in animals to see if it really works. So, for example, there's a rat model of preterm labor, um, and you can give it to the rats to see if it, it prevents the labor. So you were talking about academia. So when is the encounter between academia and a company, like a for-profit company? And what is in the interest of the for-profit company to develop such a, such a compound? So the, the for-profit companies are pharmaceutical companies. Um, and it could happen in different ways. It could be that um, a big pharmaceutical company approach, works with a group of academics on an interesting pathway Um, and fund them to some extent, and then they will uh, use the information that comes out of that to start developing drugs. Or it could be that the academics themselves uh, set up a company. You know, they have a great idea, they come up with this great new thing, they have show somehow, maybe in an animal model, that it works. Um, and they can set up a company themselves, try and get some funding, and then start do developing the drug. How does the cycle go? Um, what are the steps that this um, medicine will, or 
soon-to-be medicine has to go through in order to be developed, approved, tested, and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Basically, what is your job on a daily basis? <laughs> okay. Well, I'm just involved in part of the process, but I'll try and describe mm-hmm. the, the more complete process. Um, so once you've identified a compound, we call it a candidate, a drug candidate, um, you've got to do more extensive testing on it. Fortunately, that involves animal studies. Um, you've got to show that it's safe and that it does what you're hoping it's going to do. You've also got to um, work out how to produce it at a commercial scale so you, and, and to a quality that's necessary for, for a drug. And at some point, then, you've got to start testing it in human beings. And, and there are three distinct phases of testing in humans. First, um, not surprising, they're called phase one, phase two, and phase three, before you register the drug for... for um, approval and marketing. Uh, Phase one is typically done in healthy volunteers, often medical students or uh, young people who want to volunteer. Um, And you're testing different doses of the drug. Maybe you give it just once, maybe you give it uh, for several days. And you're looking to see, does this drug do anything? What does it do apart from the thing you want it to do? So does it cause adverse events? Does it affect uh, the liver? Does it affect the blood? Does it, are you looking quite intensively? Does it affect the heart, for example? You're looking at all of these things. Once you finish that phase um, and it looks safe to go up to a certain dose, you can start testing in patients. So in fact, we've just finished an, a phase two study in, in women with preterm labor. Um, and we, we do what a, we do first, what, what we call a proof of concept study. Okay, we've, we've generated all this science, we've done some testing in animals, we've done safety testing in healthy volunteers. Does it actually do what we want it to do in human beings? Um, and, and that's where I come in, actually. I'm organising those clinical trials uh, to test the drug in people. I guess, or I know actually, <laughs> that you need uh, to do a lot of writing. Is that correct? Exactly. I mean, the, the, the data is the key. Uh, and uh, so we have to collect all of the information um, about, you know, when we get the drug, when, when we give it, where, what situation is given, all of the information about the patients who are being tested and then what happens to them during the study. But all of that collection has to be very well organised and, um, and organised up front. And we do this in the form of something called a clinical trial protocol. We write a document, it's typically... 50 pages, something like this, it describes exactly what sort of patients we're going to test, uh, what doses we're going to give, when we're going to give them, what are the medicines they could be taking, what are the medicines they might not be taking. A very detailed description of exactly what sort of patients, their age, maybe their their weight. Um, uh, with preterm labor, of course, it, it's, it's, we're looking at uh, women who are at a st- certain stage of labor. So a normal labor, uh, sorry, a normal uh, pregnancy will go to 40 weeks after the last menstrual period. Preterm labor is defined as between uh, up to, well, before 37 weeks. And we talk about um, uh, starting about 24 weeks because before that there's a question about whether the baby would be viable if it's born before 24 weeks. Uh, so we define exactly the sort of patients. We, we're testing patients between 24 and uh, 34 weeks of gestation. And there's very, uh, various other criteria as well. Also in the protocol, uh, we'll, we have to define exactly how we're going to test. So if we give the drug, 
what's going to be the measurement that tells us whether the drug's working or not. Uh, we call this the primary endpoint. And so, for example, it could be, in this case, are we delaying labour by at least 48 hours? Are we delaying labour by seven days? Are we delaying, uh, sorry, birth um, up to 37 weeks? Because then by then the patient's reached full term and the baby should be able to be born without any, any complications. And all of this is written in the protocol. So I guess that you have just a few projects per year or cycles of, of projects because it, it must take a long time to do one compound and to make sure that uh, it closes the, the cycle. Um, are there times when you work very hard and then times when you can actually take a break or how is it, is, is it always varied according to the, the product? Yes, for me personally, yes, um, because I'm involved in the design of the studies And eventually when the study's finished, um, analysis of the data and reporting of the data, so writing the reports and also publishing it in the scientific literature. Um, and a typical study like the one we've just finished in preterm labor, we recruited uh, just over 100 patients um, at various sites around the world. Um, and that took us about 18 months to recruit those patients. So from when I started, we started the study, there was a lot of work. Then while the study's running, there's not a lot of work for me. There's a lot of work for other people who are organizing the study, the doctors and the nurses who are uh, assessing patients that come into the labor wards to see if they're suitable for the study. And then the people who are checking all of the data is being entered correctly into our databases and, that, and it's true. Um, but for me, yes, personally, there are definite cycles within one project. And typically I would work on, uh, well, at the moment I'm working on uh, about four different projects. Is there a minimum number of people that you need to test the compound on? Depending on what sort of indication it is. So if it's, when I say an indication, it's, it's a disease that you're trying to treat usually. So um, for something like cardiovascular disease or heart attacks, you know, it, it's tens of thousands of patients. If it's a very rare disease, so it might be a very rare disease in, in children, for example, and the, there might only be 100 patients in the country. Obviously, you can't do studies in thousands of patients, so then the rules are different and you can do much, much smaller studies. If it's a, a very specific type of cancer where people really don't have any good therapies and they're probably going to die you know, in, the, in the following years, um, you can do quite small studies, um, maybe 10, 35 patients, something like this, and already get approval for a drug based on that. But typically it's thousands. In, in the area I'm working in, uh, we will test hundreds probably in the phase two. I didn't mention before the phase three are the confirmatory studies, the bigger studies, and typically they will be thousands, if not tens of thousands of patients. You have, of course, several years of experience. And um, But how did you um, land a job like this? Um, did you? Uh, I'm sure you need to have uh, some... Uh, background that is a scientific background. Um, can you tell us a bit about your personal experience to to your professional path? I'm uh, originally qualified as a pharmacist, uh, with always with the intention of working in drug development. That was something that interested me from a young age, um, and I started working in the pharmaceutical industry when I f finished my pharmacy degree. Uh, I was working actually making tablets. Um, <laughs> Uh, for a company called uh, Sterling Winthrop at the time. 
Um, but then I went back and did more studies. I did a PhD, um, understanding better how certain types of drugs are absorbed from the, uh, the intestine. And once I finished that, I started working for a startup company, one of these biotech companies you hear about. In fact, uh, the founder was a colleague of mine or a friend of mine um, who did his PhD at the same time. And he and uh, the other founders invited me to come and help them with the development. So I started, uh, I took responsibility for running the clinical studies in that company. What was your PhD about? You take uh, certain drugs, what happens to them in the, in the intestine, where exactly they're absorbed from in the intestinal tract, um, how meals that you might take affect that, um, and how you might improve the formulation, so the, the tablet or the capsule or the contents of the tablet or the capsule, to improve the absorption. I was particularly interested in some drugs um, uh, are not very well absorbed from the gut. They don't dissolve very well, essentially. And that can be improved if you take it with a meal. So it's why sometimes you'll see on the label, you know, you should take this with food. It's part of the reason. However, that's not always that easy and you can get a lot of variability. And so, and that's not, not usually not a good thing because if you don't get enough absorption, the drug doesn't work very well. If you get too much, it can have side effects. And uh, so you try and develop a formulation that, that, avoids this vari variability. And that's what I was uh, doing in my PhD. Fascinating. And so tell me, what would you say are the hard skills and soft skills for uh, to become a clinical scientist? The main thing, I guess, is you have to have a scientific background, uh, something uh, medical or scientific. It could be uh, chemistry, biology. It could be medicine. It could be nursing. So you have to have an understanding of how drugs work and uh, uh, and how they can be tested. After that, you need to um, uh, usually be very detail-orientated, I would say, because we're collecting a lot of information. We have to be very precise on exactly what the information is. I think those are the main things, you know, a scientific background, um, detail-orientated, I guess, you know, an interest in helping people in some way, you know, like the, the people have got this understanding what it is for someone to have a type, a type of disease, what might be needed to then uh, help those people. And what's most important to those people, actually, you know, is, is it uh, what, what symptoms are most important? Um, with pre-term labor, maybe it's quite straightforward <laughs> because, you know, you're trying to delay the, the labor, you're trying to improve the health of the baby, actually, when it's born. Uh, so... But even so, there's, it, it, you still have to really understand the process and understand in the end what's important to the patients, what's important to the doctors, um, and actually also what's important to the people who are paying for the healthcare in the end. For example, a neonate, a very early neonate, is bought, uh, has to be put into a neonatal intensive care unit. And that's very expensive. So if you can avoid uh, the need for that, you can save money overall to the health system. Would you say that having a PhD is important or necessary for this kind of, you know, this line of work? It's common, I think, in, in a lot of people do. Um, and I guess, you know, if you've done a PhD in science, probably you've had to, had to ha have an aptitude or propensity for uh, very analytical thinking and, and, and very precise um, approach to, to doing research. But it's not essential and not necessary. I don't think there's plenty of people um, 
doing clinical research who don't have PhDs. You had, of course, your uh, colleagues at uh, during your PhD studies, mm-hmm. uh, but someone who, for instance, who hasn't done a PhD or doesn't have that network of mm-hmm. connections, uh, where could he or she start? Well, the obvious place to start is um, a role called a clinical research associate, and this is typically where people enter into the industry. So it's it's a person who um, works for the uh, the sponsor of the studies. Uh, and these are typically the pharmaceutical companies, they're paying for them and and organizing them. And they go to the hospitals or the clinics where the studies are being done and they check the information that's being put into the database. So, for example, you know, we we will enter information into a a database about the patient, about about their condition, about what they took and what happened to them during the study. But that has to be checked against the hospital records. And these people then go to the site and spend their time making sure that the information is correct and verifiable. No one's made it up or put the wrong patient in by accident and things like this. And that's a very important role. It's a, um, and it's a, it's a difficult role, I think, because you've got to have very detail oriented, as I mentioned before, because you're checking this very, this very detailed information. But at the same time, you've got to have good people skills because you've, you're interacting with uh, the medical staff at the hospital or the clinics, the nurses um, uh, and the medical staff. And often they're busy doing things with their patients and they don't want to spend time with, you know, the, the clinical research associate who's wanting them to sign off to say this, you know, this has all been done properly or get access to the medical records and things like that. And, uh, and there's also a lot of travelling involved because we studies we do are, are all over the world. So the, the study I just mentioned before with preterm labor, we had sites in Europe, in Spain, uh, Czech Republic, in Russia, uh, Israel, and Vietnam. And uh, so you can imagine uh, we've got to have people visiting all of those places. And typically they're based in those countries because, of course, you need to speak the local language as well. Um, and uh, so they spend a lot of time traveling to the different hospitals and, and clinics where the, the clinical studies are taking place. Are conferences a good place to do networking? Yes, yes, for sure. I, I spend a lot of time um, going to conferences, medical conferences. Uh, in my role um, uh, as the clinical scientist and designing the studies, um, because an important component of the study design is uh, the medical practice. So you need to understand the, the latest medical practice. You need to get advice from um, people who are experts in the area. For example, I organized a meeting last week uh, because we've got this, a new protocol we're designing. Um, uh, and I had experts from uh, the US, uh, from Europe, Czech Republic, Spain, uh, UK, and also from Australia on the call. Uh, advising us on exactly how to design the protocol. Um, and those sort of networks are often uh, established at medical conferences. So the other part of that is that when we finish the study, um, as, as good scientists, we're obliged to um, publish the results. And, uh, and the, the way of doing that usually is first at a conference. We submit an abstract and then we either have an oral presentation or maybe a poster presentation. And then later on, we'll, we'll write a manuscript for publication in a scientific journal. 
Um, and often we'll do that in, in collaboration with the doctors who helped us design the studies or, in, or recruited the patients for the studies. And those at the conferences is a good place to meet those people and discuss uh, the planning you know, for those, for those uh, publications. Would you say your job is a social one or is it more like an individual one? Would it be okay and good for people that are seeking more of like a, relationships and um, exchange with colleagues? Um, is, it, is it a bit of a mix of the two or what would you suggest? That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, an interesting one. I mean, part of it, of course, all the data checking is, you know, sort of quite insular, I would say. But, you know, it's, it's a big team actually that's needed to run these clinical studies. Um, so not one person could do it by themselves. So you need to work with other people. And as I mentioned before, you need to work with the doctors who are treating the patients that you want to study in these clinical studies. So for me, it, it's quite a social. You need to be able to get along with people and engage with people uh, to be successful. To conclude, I would have a question about an anecdote, if you have one that you can <laughs> share <laughs> about your past experiences or more recent um, about maybe a successful outcome um, uh, or a funny story? Actually, one of the interesting things I did, actually, at one point I worked for a hospital in Melbourne in Australia uh, where I was living for a long time, uh, running studies for pharmaceutical companies mostly. So I was, at, I was at, actually at the, working for the hospital, not for the pharmaceutical company. So we did lots of different studies. And one very unusual study that we did was uh, actually for a veterinary product. So it was a, an analgesic given to cats and dogs uh, before surgery that would uh, prevent the pain. And the, the idea was that it was put onto the skin of the dog. So, for example, on the back of the neck uh, in a liquid, uh, it soaks into the skin and then releases the analgesic over a series of days so that they don't have the pain, the post-operative pain. But there was a concern that then um, if this is a strong analgesic, it's, a, it's an opiate analgesic um, uh, called fentanyl, and uh, there was a concern that if uh, a carer or the owner of the dog, you know, sort of got this onto their skin, it might get absorbed in their skin and then would have effects on the owner. So we actually had to do an experiment where we administered this thing to the dogs We had some dogs in the, in the next building to where we were. Um, and then we had to get some volunteers to stroke the dogs for a prescribed <laughs> amount of time. I think it was for two minutes or something like this with their hands. And then put their hands in their mouths, suck their fingers. Oh, wow. And then test the patients to see if they had any drug in their blood. So we took blood samples over a period of time. Uh, so, and people said to us, oh, will you be able to find people who are going to stroke dogs and then put it in their mouths? But actually it was was no problem. <laughs> we did that. So we do lots of different. We did lots of different studies, and that was a, a, a kind of an unusual one and an interesting one. Another area I worked in was in malaria, uh, tr developing new drugs for malaria. Actually, at the time, I was um, working for a um, not-for-profit organization. That's why I eventually came to Switzerland. Actually, uh, based in Geneva. Uh, which is like a small pharmaceutical company, but it's funded by charitable organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, for example. So we were developing new drugs to try and treat malaria, particularly in, uh, in Africa and in Asia and South America. And um, one of the problems is, is when you first go into patients, you, know, you don't know whether your drug really works. 
and you don't know what dose of the drug works. So if you're going into a patient who has a disease that could kill them, a potentially fatal disease, which malaria is, um, it's a bit tricky because, you know, what dose are you going to give and how, what about if they, if they get a lower dose um, and they're not treated, you know, they could, they could become very sick and, and even die. So we looked for a way of, of doing this, and uh, this is my job at the time, was to set up this, uh, uh, what we call a challenge model. So we would take healthy volunteers and we would give them malaria. We would give them a, a, inject a, a, a dose of blood that had malaria parasites in it and then wait for them to develop malaria. It goes in cycles every 48 hours. They develop more and more uh, malaria parasites that breed in the red blood cells and then burst out on this cycle of every 48 hours. And then at some point, give them the test drug, see if it works. But also, also always we had a rescue therapy, you know, a drug that's 100% effective so we could give it to them. And so we set this up and, and it ended up working very well. And this is uh, now they're talking about doing this with COVID. Mm. I don't know if you heard about this. This, this is a way of testing oh. uh, COVID vaccines as well. Uh, but you have to give healthy volunteers COVID-19 mm. um, and then test. Uh, well, or you can do it two ways. You can give them a vaccine then challenge them with the COVID-19 afterwards in a controlled way and see if they develop the disease. Um, and we did this for malaria, and that was that was a, a pretty interesting experience and something in the end it worked very well, and I'm quite proud that we were able to set that up. And it's also good that it can be used for, you know, it can be repeated and replicated for other researches like the vaccine for COVID. And, yes, and yes, people have used it for flu as well, for example. Thank you so much. I think we have said a lot and I would love to have more time with you maybe in the future. Thank you very much, Lauren. It's been a pleasure. More professions will be covered in the next weeks, so stay tuned on Job Tales. And we always need your help to find more interesting people anywhere in the world. People will be happy to tell us their story and help others find their path. Do you know a professional skydiver, a gynecologist, an astronaut, a lawyer, PR specialist, nurse, farmer, artisan, you name it. Then write me right now at jobtalespodcast at gmail.com. Ciao.